All right. Well, hello, High Point. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, uh, my name is Will, and I have the honor of serving as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And so I want to begin by just saying to you, we are so glad that you are tuning in for the first time. I also want to say hello to our church at home groups. I know yes, last week with my announcement, I didn't have time to say hi to you, but we are so grateful for each and every one of our church at home groups. And listen, if you're new here today and have no idea uh, what church at home is, essentially what it is, it's, it's church at home, right? I.e. the name that we gave it. And so what we do is we come together at either 10 a.m. or 5 p.m. And uh, you, you either go to someone's house or you host it at your house. And it's a time where you, you, you come together, you fellowship, you sing together, you listen to the sermon together. And then right after the sermon, there's some discussion questions. And then you could have either breakfast if it's 10 a.m. or you could have uh, supper or dinner at 5 p.m. And essentially what it is, it's, it's a way to have church in this season. And what we're really excited about is that God has been using church at home in such a special way in this season that church at home is not just something that's going to happen during COVID, but it's going to be a part of what we do going forward. So if you've never heard of church at home, be sure to reach out to us and we would love to get you connected in a group. And that's whether you are here in the Memphis area or somewhere throughout the nation. We have church at home groups meeting all throughout our nation as well. And so if you're interested in that, we would love for you to find community in a season where there isn't a lot of it. So that's Church at Home. So shout out to each uh, and every one of those groups. And uh, today uh, we have finally arrived at the final week and the final installment of our Habitology series. And uh, today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the habit of redeeming time. The habit of redeeming time time. Now, I want you to pay attention to what I did there. I didn't say the habit of managing time, but the habit of redeeming time. Managing time is a very worldly thing. Redeeming time is a very biblical thing. And so today we are going to conclude this series by looking at the habit of redeeming time. Now, now the reason why we are ending with this habit is because this passage, this, this habit that we're going to be looking at today, it, it will serve as a bookend to this series. And what I would argue is that the passage and the habit that we're going to be looking at today is actually very similar to the one that we started with. For those of you who've been following along with us in this series, you know that we started this series in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, one through two, Paul says that in order for you to live a life of worship, you have to constantly, that's what the implication is there, constantly uh, be presenting your body transforming your mind and comprehending God's will. Those are the three things that are needed. And so the reason why I started with that passage is because I believe there's no way that you can create a life that is filled with gospel-centered, Christ-honoring habits if you're not constantly presenting God your body, uh, you know, uh, transforming your mind and conforming to his will. That's just how it works. You can't do that unless you do the first thing. That's why we began with that that message in Romans 12. And I would argue that the same is things true of this habit. Even though this habit of time redeeming uh, is the habit that we are looking at today, I would argue that it's, it's more than a habit. In many ways, it's a, it's a foundational behavior that if you don't actually manage your time, if you don't actually redeem uh, the time in the way that the Bible says you must redeem the time, you're not, ever, you're not gonna ever be able to do any of the other habits we talk about. And that's why I would end, that's why I'm ending with this, this habit. Because time, if you think about it, time is the context in which other habits take place. It's, it's, the, it's the backdrop. So if you don't manage your time well, it doesn't matter how many habits you try to add. 
So that's why I feel that not only does this, this habit, this passage mirror Romans 12, one through two, but in many ways it serves as a backdrop, as a foundation for all the other habits that we've been talking about in this series. So we're looking at the habit of redeeming time. And our passage today uh, comes to us from the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there. If you have your electronic devices, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians is in the New Testament, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV. So here's what it says. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. The Lord. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us three steps that we need to take if we are going to be people who steward our in a gospel-centered, uh, Christ-honoring way. Here are the three steps that we have to take consistently in order to redeem our time, in order to steward our time well. The first step, Paul says, is that we are to evaluate our time. You need to evaluate your time. The second step we need to take is we need to redeem our time. You need to redeem your time. And then the third step that we are to take is that we are to converge our time. You have to converge your time. So evaluate, redeem, converge. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. The, the first step that Paul says we need to take is we need to evaluate time. I'm going to reread uh, verse 15. Look what Paul says. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, he says, but as wise. So look carefully then how you walk. So, so let, let me unpack this for you in the original language because there's a lot going on under the hood. If you just look at it in English, you're not going to fully understand what Paul is getting at, okay? So the first phrase I want you to look at is that phrase, look carefully. Now, the Greek word for look is the Greek uh, blepo. It means to, to focus in on something, to, to pay attention to something, to, to, to give, give all of your mind's attention and to zoom in on something. That's what the word there, blepo, means in Greek. Then the word careful, it's, it's, it's a... It's a you are to look, you are to observe, and the word there carefully means, it means to do it accurately, to do it with exactness, to do it with precision, okay? So, so we are to look, we are to take a very close look at how we manage our time. It's not working? Cool. Am I on? Cool. All right. So, Sorry about that, guys. So here, here, so what Paul, what Paul is saying here and what he's, what he's teaching us is that in order for us to be time redeemers, not just time managers, we need to constantly be evaluating our time. And again, the, the word there, uh, he says, look carefully. The word there carefully, it means that we are to be constantly examining and investigating and scrutinizing and assessing our time. Okay, that, that's, what the, what, that's what it means there in the Greek. 
And, and the implication is, is that you're to constantly do it. In other words, it, I don't want you to just listen to this sermon and do it one time and be like, oh, I did what I had to do. No, no, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul says that we are to constantly be and consistently be looking at and observing our time. And we are to do it carefully and we're to do it accurately and we are to do it precisely and we are to do it honestly. It's just, it's just how it works. That's what we are to do. And then he says, and I don't want you to miss this. He says in the text that we are to carefully look at how we walk. Look at how you walk. Now, the reason why the word walk there is important is because in, in the Greek, the word there walk has to do with your lifestyle. It has to do with the overall pattern of your life. In other words, Paul here isn't just saying evaluate your one hour of your day or one, one day or one week. He says, no, I want you to be constantly evaluating the pattern and the, the behaviors and the lifestyle that you're carrying out. Literally one word study said that the word there walk has to do with your habits. So when you are evaluating, i.e. the series that we're doing, right? You are to constantly be evaluating your pattern, your conduct, your way of life, and your habits. Paul then connects it to being wise. He says the biggest difference between someone who is wise and someone who is foolish is that the wise person is constantly evaluating their walk. They are constantly evaluating how they use time. So if you're sitting here today and you want to know what wisdom looks like, according to Paul, one of the symptoms of wisdom is an individual who is evaluating their time and they're doing it accurately, precisely, and with exactness. That's what we are called to do. If you are not evaluating your time, then according to scripture, you are a fool. Simple as that. You are a fool if you are not evaluating your time. Okay. Now, now here's the thing. One of the one of the classes that uh, my wife and I took, Lily and I took back in the day, this is probably a few years into our marriage. We were in a really weird uh, financial situation. And so I, I just kind of got fed up with it. And I decided to take the financial peace uh, university class by, by Dave Ramsey. And so I, I, I took the class and Lily joined me in it. And uh, it was such a revolutionary moment for us because once we took the class, we finally got an understanding of how to manage our money in a biblical way. And it changed our lives. It really did. I can't, I can honestly say that we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for that class. And one of the things that Dave Ramsey says right at the beginning is he says, you can't actually do anything with your money until you get an accurate assessment of where you are financially. If you don't take the time to accurately assess what's actually going on in your bank account, what's actually going on with your finances, you can't make any progress. You have to have an honest diagnosis of the problem before you go looking for solutions. And you've heard the phrase before that time is money. I would argue that in some ways it is like that, that in order for you to really do any work in this area of time, the first thing you have to do, according to Paul, is you have to get an honest evaluation of your time. Where is your time really going? If we don't do the evaluation piece, then what we do is we assume, oh, I, I'm pretty good at managing my time. Paul says, no, you have to get into the wise habit of constantly evaluating your time. And as a side note, if you're sitting here and maybe during this season uh, because of job loss or just because of the season that you find yourself in, you and your family are struggling financially, I would love for you to consider Financial Peace University. We actually have that class here uh, at High Point. It's a, 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 a class led by uh, Larry Coley, who's one of the gentlemen on our staff. And man, if you reach out to him, we would love to get you in that class, especially in a season like this. That's a side note, but it's a really important one, especially if that's something you've never heard of. It's called Financial Peace University, and we will love to help uh, get you into that class during this season, right? So, so in order for us to become good 
time managers. In order for us to, to, to redeem the time, according to the Apostle Paul, the wisest thing for us to do is to constantly be evaluating where we are. And if we don't know where we are, if we don't know where we're starting, then how are we going to make any progress? So the question that you might be asking is this, how, okay, I get it. So in order for me to be wise, I have to evaluate my time. But, but the question is, how do I evaluate my time? What standards, what filters do I use to figure out whether or not I am using my time correctly? Well, according to scripture, there are two filters. There are two standards that we use that we need to constantly be using in order to determine how we are using our time. The first standard, the first filter is the word of God. And the second standard and filter is the will of God. The word of God and the will of God. So here's what I mean by the word of God. If you are going to do the work of evaluating your time, the only way that you're going to actually be able to evaluate it in any uh, impactful way is if you look at your time through the lens of God's word. See, God's word has certain things to say about how your marriage should look like, about how your parenting should look like, about how your career should look like, about how your 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 uh a leisure time should look like. And so the way you determine whether or not you are using and stewarding your time wisely is by being in God's word and looking at your time management, at your uh, 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 stewarding of time through the lens of God's word. That's the first way. The, the second way though is through the will of God. And we're gonna get deeper into that in a second because Paul actually brings that up in verse 17. But here's what I mean by the will of God. Paul says that we are to be wise with our time. I don't know about you, but I am convinced in light of scripture that the wisest thing you can do in any given moment, in any given season, is God's will, right? It's pretty simple, right? The, 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 the wisest thing you can do with this week is whatever God's will is for you in this week. If you do God's will, you are going to be wise with how you manage your time. So you constantly have to be asking the question, what does God's word say? in light of this, but there's some areas where God doesn't speak into in light of his word. And in those areas, you have to say, Lord, what is your will for me in this area? If you seek God's will, when it comes to your time, I guarantee you, you are going to be a much wiser steward of time than if you didn't do that. Okay. And one of the books that I, I came across uh, a couple weeks ago that I found really helpful, especially in light of this conversation today, uh, is, is a book by Stephen Covey. And Stephen Covey, as many of you know, is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That was his famous book. But he wrote a book several years ago called First Things First. And in that book, uh, he talks about how we are to put the most important things, not the most urgent things, but the most important things first. And he makes this, he gives this illustration that really encouraged me. And I hope it encourages you as we talk about time. He said that when it comes to time management, what a lot of us are convinced we need is we need a clock. And here's what I mean by that. He says that a lot of us, when we look at our management, our time, we think, man, what we need is a clock. We need more time. If we just had more, if I just had more time, I would be able to get done all the things that I want to get done. And what he argues is that's not the case. Because if God gave you a clock, if God gave you more time, all you're going to do is waste that time too. And he says, what you need is not a clock. What you need is a compass. And he's like, think about it. A, a compass and a clock look very similar when you look at them, right? They're both circular. They both have a needle. But the difference between a compass and a clock is that a compass doesn't give you the time. The compass gives you direction. The compass tells you what true north is. And he says, what a lot of us need when it comes to this conversation of time is not a clock. What we need is a compass. We don't need more time. We need more direction. That if we had direction, if we had clarity on what was actually important, we actually have more time than we think. But we spend so much of our time on things that don't matter 
and so little of our time on the things that do matter that that's what makes us convinced that we need more time. But we don't need a clock. What we need is a compass, okay? Now, now here's the thing. Think about this. If, if you don't necessarily know where you're headed, it really doesn't matter how fast you're going, right? You can be going real fast in the wrong direction. And a lot of us, when it comes to this conversation about time, we think about pace, but we never think about place. We can be going at a really great pace, but if you're heading into the wrong place, then it doesn't matter. And so that's why he argues that what we ultimately need in order to be good stewards of our time is we need to be individuals who look at our schedule, who look at our weeks through the lens of a compass, not through the lens of a clock. There are people here today who are very, very efficient, but not very effective. There's a difference between being efficient and being effective. When you're efficient, it means you get everything done that you wanted to get done. When you're effective, it means you get done the things that are most important. You could have a very efficient day and have your whole to-do list crossed off, but not a very effective day. Because the only way you can be effective is when you look at your time through the lens of a compass and you do the things that are most important. And you, re- you don't just manage your time, you redeem your time for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what we see here in this passage. That, that's what we see here in this text. As a matter of fact, I came across a quote this week that I, I, I actually, I don't have it here written out, but I, it, it's something that, that really impacted me because what the author said is, see, a lot of times we think if, if, if time was water and, and, and our time was in a bucket, we would think that we waste time by kicking the bucket down and all the water falling out at once. But he says the way we wait, we don't waste time like that. Like we don't waste time in, in big chunks like that. The way we waste time is instead of us kicking over the bucket and all the water coming out at once, we waste time by putting holes in that bucket and the water spilling out over time. It's not you pushing the bucket down, but it's time just seeping away moment by moment, day by day. And what he argues is that we, the reason why we're so bad with time is because we, de- we tend to think about time in days, weeks, and months instead of in seconds and in minutes and in hours. We lose our time in the details, in the seconds, in the minutes, in the hours, not in the days, in the weeks, in the months, okay? That's why that's so important. And one of the, one of the quotes that I came across was by um, a missionary named David Brainerd, okay? Now, before I read this quote to you, let me give you some background on who David Brainerd was. David Brainerd lived uh, probably about 150 years ago, roughly, maybe more, I'm bad with math, but it, it was well over 100 years ago. But he was a contemporary, get this, of Jonathan Edwards, of George Whitfield and John Wesley. But David Brainerd, Brainerd, for some reason, is not really that well known. But instead of being a preacher who preached at a church, he was a missionary. And even though he did all of his ministry here in the United States, he was a missionary specifically to the Native American people who lived in and around the area of Delaware, okay? Now here's the thing about David Brainerd. He came to know the Lord at an early age and he went through incredible amounts of suffering. When he was younger, his mom died. When he was 21, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis and then he struggled with tuberculosis from the age of 21 to the age of 29 when he actually died. He died at 29, okay? And even though people told him to slow down and to not do ministry because he was dying, literally he was dying, he continued to do ministry. But because he wasn't married and because he was isolated out on the mission field, not only was he struggling with tuberculosis, but he also struggled with depression. And, and, and David Brainerd gave his life up for the sake of the gospel 
And what's crazy about it is that towards the end of his life, he got so sick that he actually ended up moving into Jonathan Edwards' house. He lived in Jonathan Edwards' house. And some people say that he actually fell in love with Jonathan Edwards' daughter, even though they never had a chance to get married because he was so sick by then. But by the time he died, Jonathan Edwards was so moved by his testimony that Jonathan Edwards wrote a book about David Brainerd. And to this day, it is the highest selling book that Jonathan Edwards has ever written. The biography of David Brainerd. Okay. And Wesley, John Wesley was inspired by him and read the book. George Whitfield, who's my hero, was inspired by him and read the book. So David Brainerd was a guy that only was able to do real ministry from the age of 21 to the age of 29 when he died. And this David Brainerd, here's the quote that he had. Listen to this. He says, oh, how precious is time and how it pains me to see it slide away. Listen to this. While I do so little to any good purpose. Be careful to make a good improvement of precious time. So David Brainerd, a guy who died at age 29 and did more work for the Lord that some of us do by the age 89, was convicted by the fact that he didn't do enough for the Lord. Why? Because what a wise person always does is evaluate their time. We need to evaluate our time. So the first thing we see in this passage that we are to do. This first step is we are to evaluate our time. The the second thing that we are to do um, in light of this passage is we are to redeem our time. Not only are we to evaluate our time, but we are also to redeem our time. Look what Paul says here in verse 16. Verse 16 says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil are evil. So according to Paul, if you can go to my next slide. So according to, to Paul, the, 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 second, the second thing that we are called to do is we are called to redeem our time. Okay. Now, now here's the thing. I would argue that verse 16 is the heart of this passage. Verse 16 is the heart of this passage. Not only is it the middle of the passage, like literally, but, but metaphorically, I would say that it is the heart of this passage. And I would argue that out of everything else that Paul says in this passage, out of everything else that he mentions in this passage, this verse is the most countercultural part of it because the world tells us that we are to manage our time for our glory and our good. The Bible says that we are to redeem our time for God's glory and others good. Okay. So the first thing I want you to see here in, in verse 16, is the phrase making the most. Paul says that we are to make the most. Now, now that phrase there in English is actually just one word in Greek. And it, it literally, the word there is to redeem. In the Greek, Paul says, redeem the time. So, so in English, it takes four words, making the best use. In Greek, it's one word, redeem. Now, for those of you who know anything about the Bible, you know that that word redeem is a gospel verb. It is a verb used to describe what Jesus Christ did for us. As a matter of fact, in, in Galatians chapter four, I believe it talks about how Jesus came to, he, he, was, he, he came to earth, born of a woman in order to redeem those under the law. So, so the, it's a gospel verb used to describe what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. So, so don't miss this. According to the apostle Paul, we as Christians, we're not to manage our time. We are to redeem our time. 
Now, it's not only a gospel verb, but it's actually a market verb. And here's what I mean by a market verb. It was a verb, a word that was used oftentimes in the markets in those days. When you went to the market, you would make purchases. You would buy things, right? And the word there to redeem, literally, it means to buy something back. To buy something back. Or a better picture of it, it literally means to pay a ransom. So it's like something was taken from you and you're paying a ransom to get what belongs to you back. That's what the word there, redeem, means. Paul says that we as believers aren't not to manage our time. We are to redeem our time, a gospel verb, okay? Now, here's the thing about that idea of redeeming. The, the, the picture that comes to mind when I think of redeeming is I think of coupon people. I, I don't know if you've ever met someone who's into coupons. It, it might be your mom. It might be a, a, a family member, right? But, but I don't know if you've ever been in, in line behind a coupon person, but, but it, it's, a, it's an event. And, and, and it's a, almost always it's a several minute event because they have a coupon for every single thing that they're purchasing. And now with the internet, they don't even have to get it from the newspaper. They can get it from the internet. They can print it out and have 60 more coupons, right? Coupon people don't play. And many times they have their, their binders laminated and they're ready to go. Wherever they go, they know how to get the best deal. But here's what's interesting about people who coupon. The verb that's used when you turn a coupon in is the word redeem. You are redeeming a coupon. Coupon people are constantly looking for the best investment of their resources. They're they're constantly looking for the best deal possible. According to the Apostle Paul, when it comes to our time, Paul says we are to be coupon people. We are to look at our time as as an incredible resource and we are to, like wise investors, constantly be looking for the best investment of our time. We are looking for the best deal possible. That's what it means to redeem the time, okay? Now, here's the thing about that word time. So we looked at the phrase, making the best use of, to redeem. Then I want to look at what the word time is. Now, here's the thing about time in in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's two words for time. There's one that's used a lot, and there's one that's not used as often. The, The first word, Greek word for time in the New Testament is the word chronos. And the word chronos is where we get the English word chronological, okay? All chronos is, chronos is the natural measurable flow of time. That's all chronos is. It's the natural measurable flow of time. So for example, right now, it is Sunday, August 2nd. That's chronos. And tomorrow, it's going to be Monday, August 3rd. And then Tuesday, it's going to be August, I mean, uh, Tuesday, August 3rd forth, right? That's chronos. Chronos is the natural flow of time. It is the natural measurable flow of time. In other words, you measure chronos with seconds and with minutes and with hours and, and with days. That, that's how chronos works. But what's fascinating to me is that the Greek word that Paul uses here for time is not the word chronos. The word that he uses here is another Greek word, which is the Greek word Kairos. Now, Kairos is different from Kronos because Kronos is unlimited. Kronos is endless. Kronos is continuous. It never stops. Kairos, on the other hand, is limited. And literally in Greek, Kairos is a decisive God-ordained moment. It is a decisive God-ordained opportunity. That's what the word Kairos means. And out of all the, the words that Paul could have used here, that's the Greek word that he uses here. He says, we need to be making the best use of, we need to be redeeming, not our chronos, but our Kairos. 
not our not the not the everyday natural measurable flow of time but the god ordained moments and opportunities that come up throughout our lives some translations the esv doesn't do this but some translations actually translate that word time as opportunity making the best use of your opportunity i, I think that's a good translation because that's essentially what what kairos means it's a god ordained opportunity it is an opportune moment an opportune time that if you don't take advantage of you lose see with chronos if you waste chronos today you can get more chronos tomorrow lord willing if god gives you another day but when you miss a kairos moment you never get it back. That's the difference between Kronos and Kairos. So Paul says that we are to be making the best use. We are to be redeeming not our Kronos, but our Kairos. Now, let me give you a story that I feel helps illustrate the difference between Kronos and Kairos. A few years ago, um, back when Lily and I were still living in Chicago, uh, we lived in a suburb of Chicago called Carroll Stream. And uh, garbage day was Friday. It was always every Friday. And you would think I would, have it down by then but every every thursday i would be like dang it thursday night like at like 11 30 and i'd be like dang it it's garbage tomorrow and i would have to run out and, and put the garbage out right so one night this was january so you guys think it's cold here in january but it, it it's it's like summer for us if, if compared to chicago chicago in january is like 10 below okay so it's 11 30 i'm sitting there uh, watching youtube or watching sports center or something and it hits me i'm like dang it i gotta take the trash out because tomorrow is garbage day Kronos, right? Every Friday is garbage day. That's a measurable event, okay? So I get up and I put my puffy jacket on and I'm wearing my pajama pants and I slide my Crocs on and yes, I wear Crocs and I'm a proud, I'm proud to admit that, okay? And so I put my Crocs on and, uh, and I go out and, I, and, I'm, and I'm tired and I'm getting ready for bed. I'm like, let me get this done and then I'll head in and go to bed. But when I go outside, um, I, I take out the, the, the trash bins, the trash bin and the recycle bin, and I put it at the edge of the driveway. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see this little light come on all the way at, on the other side of the street. I see this little light come out and I'm like, what the heck? Now, at, at that time, uh, we lived in a cul-de-sac or what you guys like to call a cove. All right. So we lived in a cove, y'all. All right. And so at, 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 in, in this cove that we were living at um i could see out of the corner of my eye at the end of the cove this this light come on and it was like this little orange light and it kept going up and down and up and down and i felt like a cat like f looking looking at a laser right and i'm like what's going on it like caught my attention and my eyes hadn't really adjusted yet because my garage light was on it was really dark out and then finally it took me a few seconds but my eyes started to adjust and i started to see a silhouette of somebody and i realized that it was my neighbor vince smoking a cigar at 11:30 at night okay now here's the thing about my neighbor vince I, he was someone who from the moment i got there we moved in that community i got to know him and uh, i started doing life with him and i started sharing my testimony with him and i invited him to church many times he was this short uh, sweary Italian dude, nothing Christian about him at all. Okay. And so I see him and remember the reason why I was outside was because it was Kronos. It was a Kronos, it was Kronos. The natural flow of time is garbage day. I had to go outside and take the garbage out. But all of a sudden, the moment I saw him, I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me and say, lead me and say, go talk to Vince. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do that, man. I'm tired. It's cold. I'm wearing pajama pants. I'm wearing Crocs with socks on. It's awkward, you know? And, 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 and I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. There's no way. And literally, it's like, it, it was about a 10-second argument between the Holy Spirit and I. And the Holy Spirit and I says, go and talk to Vince. Now, 
I decided to obey him, but I don't always obey him. So I don't want to be like one of those pastors that make it seem like I always do what God wants me to do. And it's uh, we're on the airplane and 14 people come to know Jesus. That's not usually my thing. There's many times where I don't do it. Okay. But in this moment, I decided to obey him. I walked across the, the cove and, 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 and I got to him and we just started talking. And I started talking to him about how he was doing and his family and work and everything. And then about two or three minutes later, our other neighbor, Kieran, who was also a pagan, uh, he came out. And so I'm outside talking to both of these dudes. One of them smoking a cigarette. The other one smoking a cigar. I'm getting secondhand smoke for Jesus. And I'm sharing and I'm sharing essentially. It was crazy because as we were talking, God gave me the opportunity to share my testimony with these guys. It's 1130 at night. I didn't get back into my house till about midnight, but it was a really cool opportunity to just talk, not driveway to driveway, wave at each other, but to have 30 minutes of just talking where they both got to hear my testimony and how God had brought me to the Lord. Now, neither of them became Christians. It wasn't like some light shone from heaven, but it was an opportunity that God gave me that if I wouldn't have taken, I would have lost. And that's the difference between Kronos and Kairos. Kronos is the reason why I was outside. Kairos was the reason why I crossed the street. Does that make sense? That's the difference. You can, you, you'll keep getting more Kronos, but if you miss Kairos, you never get it back. And here's the thing. I would argue that the people who are best at managing Kronos are the people who are worse at redeeming Kairos. Let me say that again. The people who are the best at managing Kronos are the ones who are the worst at redeeming Kairos moments. Because when you're good at managing Kairos, uh, uh, I mean, uh, Kronos, you have your whole day planned. You know what you're going to do at eight. You know what you're going to do at 10. You know what you're going to do for lunch. You know what you're going to do for dinner. You know, your whole day is planned. Your whole week is planned. For many of you, your whole month and life is planned. And you're so good at planning at Kronos and managing Kronos that you're terrible at redeeming Kairos because anything, anytime something happens that doesn't fit into your day, into your plan, into your schedule, you're like, no, I don't have time for that. And the problem with Kairos moments, kind of like the story I just told you, Kairos moments are messy. Kairos moments are not measurable. Kairos moments are unexpected. And so the problem with people who plan everything is that unexpected things aren't perceived as good things from God. They're perceived as obstacles and distractions from what I have to do. Okay? Because here's the thing. I, I, the older I get, the better I get at managing chronos. I can do more in, in a morning than it, I would do in a week before when I was in my 20s. That I have become very efficient. Not very effective, but very efficient. I can do more now than I've ever done. But the question is, if, if, I'm, if I'm a beast at managing chronos, but terrible at managing, at, at redeeming kairos, then am, I re- then am I really honoring God with my time? I can tell you that it's a lot easier for me to send three emails than for me to play with my daughters. Why? Because I can measure three emails. I can pat myself on the back, but to play with them, it's like, uh, uh, just, I feel like I got to do something. This is not enough, right? And it's a lot easier to prepare for a sermon than go on a date with my spouse. Why? Because it's more measurable. I, I, I know I, I started it and I finished it. I can measure success. And I would argue that the people who are best at managing Kronos are the ones who are the worst at redeeming Kairos. So if you're sitting here today and you're someone who's good at managing Kronos and you're nudging the person next to you who's bad at managing Kronos saying, hey, are you taking notes? Are you listening? You better be careful because it might be that you're great at one and terrible at the other. And according to Paul, we're supposed to do both. We're supposed to manage our chronos because that's a good stewardship, but you're also supposed to redeem the kairos because that's a good Christian, okay? 
And then the question is, why, why does Paul use the verb redeem, right? That, that just seems like such a, why use the word redeem? Why would he use the gospel verb, the, the word that means to buy back, to, to ransom something, right? Why would he use that word? Well, well, the reason why the apostle Paul uses the word redeem is because according to him, and, I, and you can read right past this if you're not paying attention, he says at the end of verse 16, because the days are evil. I don't, I don't even know if we fully understand what that means. Here's what this means. When Adam and Eve sinned back in Genesis 3, not only did it impact their relationship between them and God, not only did it impact their relationship between them and one another, but it also impacted their relationship with creation. In other words, according to Romans 8, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were impacted by sin. Creation itself was impacted by sin. So get this. The days that we live in are evil in and of themselves. Like literally a time around us is evil because of our sin. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but so many of us approach time management, we approach our days like they're neutral and they're not neutral. The word there for evil, there's two words for, in Greek for evil. One is this abstract um, removed evil. So it's this abstract distant evil. But then the other Greek word for evil, which is the Greek word that Paul uses here, it is a personal force. It is an active personal force of immorality, evil, and wickedness. So think about it. Our days, every day you get up, there is an active personal force trying to keep you from redeeming the time, trying to keep you from stewarding your time for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so when you pretend like that's not the case, you you just feel like days are neutral, you don't end up stewarding your time the way you should. It's the illustration that we used a few weeks ago, the, the Francis Chan illustration, that, that, that literally because of sin, we live in a world, every day is like an escalator that's going down. We, 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 we get up and every morning, if you don't do anything, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't, uh, if you don't disciple, if you don't evangelize, there's no such thing as staying still. Spiritual growth, because of the days are evil, is literally like an escalator that's going down. If you aren't constantly going up, you better believe you're moving down. Because the days in and of themselves are evil. So Paul says that when we redeem the time, we are literally being missionaries. We are literally being ambassadors. We are doing it. Think about it. When we manage our time, almost always the reason why we manage our time is for our glory and our good. We want to manage our time so we can say, hey, look at all the stuff I got done today. We want to manage our time so we can make space for the stuff that we really want to do. A lot of times time management, this is why self-help people love writing on it. A lot of times time management is for our glory and our good. But when you start to redeem the time, you're taking the time and using it not for other people and, or evil purposes, not even for selfish purposes, but you're redeeming the time. You're taking time, you're redeeming it, you're literally buying it back and you're using it for the glory of God and for the good of other people. So one of the ways that we distinguish ourselves from non-believers is by how we manage our time. It's one of the ways that we are missional. It's one of the ways that we are evangelistic. That's why in Colossians, look what it says here in Colossians uh, chapter four, verse five. Paul connects wisdom with managing time again, just like he does here in Ephesians five. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. How? How do I walk in wisdom toward outsiders? How, how can I be an effective evangelist for Jesus? An effective missionary. Paul says, you do it by making the best use of the time. Not managing it, but redeeming it. And the more you redeem the time, the more you distinguish yourself from people who are not like Jesus, who don't know Jesus, and you become an effective witness and you walk in wisdom toward outsiders. 
One of the one of the the word studies that I use uh, is uh, by a guy named Kenneth West or West. I don't know how to say his last name, but he's he, I, I use him every week because I love his word studies. And just to give you a summary of what it says here in the Greek, even though I broke it all down, look look he what he does here is he literally takes it directly from the Greek and writes it in English. He doesn't try to make it readable. He just reads it exactly how it is in the Greek. So let me read verses 15 and 16 directly from what it looks like in the Greek. You ready? Here's what it says. It says, be constantly, there's that act, you're constantly doing it. Be constantly taking heed, therefore, how accurately you are conducting yourselves. Not as unwise ones, but as wise ones. Listen to this. There's the redeeming word. Buying up for yourselves the opportune time because the days are pernicious. That's what it actually says in the Greek. He took it straight from the Greek and wrote it in English. That's what we are to do. So the first step is to evaluate your time. The second step is to redeem your time. And then the third and final step is to converge your time. Look what he says here in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, therefore, do not be foolish. So he brings up that idea of wisdom again. And just so you know, the, the word wisdom there, uh, it, it, the word wisdom there means to be prudent, to be skillful, okay? That's what the word wisdom means. He brings up the opposite of wisdom, which is foolish. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the final step that we need to take in order to be stewards of our time is we need to converge our timeline with God's timeline. We need to get this. We need to converge our will with God's will. Like I said earlier, the wisest thing you can do in this season is whatever God's will is. All right, we've been talking about wisdom this whole time. The wisest thing you can do in this, in this day, in this week, in this month, in this season is to do God's will. God's will is the wisest thing for you to do in every situation. And so Paul here, he connects wisdom with God's will and says, if you give yourself over to understanding God's will, you will be a wise manager of time. You will be a wise steward of time. Now, now the word that I want to unpack for you uh, that I just found just incredibly fascinating this week is the word understand. He says, do not be foolish, but understand. The Greek word there in understand, understand, it, it literally means to bring two things together that were previously separated. It, it literally means to come to an agreement. Here, here's what I found interesting. The, the word there, understand, the word picture in Greek is of a confluence. You might have never heard the word confluence before, and I had never heard of it either. But, but here's what a confluence is. A confluence is the point where two rivers come together and become one. There's literally, there's literally a word for that. It's, it's when two rivers come together and become one river. So in other words, to understand God's will, it literally means to bring your will and to bring it together to God's will, to, to bring your timeline and agree your timeline with God's timeline. It, it's, this is your river. This is God's river. And to understand God's will means the two rivers come together and there's a confluence. That's what it means to understand. So, so to, here's, here's what I want you to know. In order for you to discern God's will, God's will is not uh, the root of all this. It's the fruit of all this. Here's what I mean. You're not going to discern God's will, which is the third step, unless you do the first things, which is evaluate your time and redeem your time. If you're not evaluating your time and you're not redeeming your time, you're not going to be able to converge your time with God's time because those first two steps have to come first. And God, discerning God's will is a fruit of that, not the root of that. That's why we, that's the same thing we talked about in Romans 12 verses one and two. When we looked at Romans 12, one and two, we said, 
that it's only after you present your body, it's only after you transform your mind that you can comprehend God's will. But it's always the third thing. And a lot of us, we treat God's will like it's this mystical thing, this mystical unicorn that we can't find. And if we just, if we just pray enough, God will give you his will. But, but many times when we want God's will, we only want his will in a specific area of our life. That's not how God works. We, we need to be uh, 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 presenting our bodies. We need to be transforming our minds. And then we will comprehend his will. We need to be evaluating our time. We need to be redeeming our time. And the more we do Christ-like things, things, the more we will discern Christ's will for things. It's how it works. It's, it's, it's a result. And that's why Kevin DeYoung, who's an author who I really respect, he, here's what he says. He says, God's will for your life is not very complicated. Obviously, living a Christ-like life is hard work. And what following Jesus entails is not clear in every situation. But as an overarching principle, the will of God for your life is pretty straightforward. Be holy like Jesus by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God. He, God, calls us to run hard after him, his commands and his glory. Listen to this. The decision to be in God's will is not the choice between Memphis or Fargo or engineering or art. It's the daily decision we face to see God's kingdom or ours, submit to his lordship or not, live according to his rules or our own. That's what we see. That discerning God's will is a fruit of an obedient life not the root of an obedient life, okay? So, as we grow in an intimate knowledge of God, we will grow in knowledge of God. You know, one of, one, some of you have never met my father, but, but my dad is this super Cuban, uh, Clyde Drexler-looking dude, okay? If you saw Last Dance, Clyde Drexler played for the Portland Trailblazers. He had a receding hairline. My dad does too. And uh, my dad's uh, the, the Cuban Clyde Drexler. All right. And so uh, Clyde the Glide and, and my dad is one of my, my best friends and, and, and I, I, he just he just is. And a lot of my sense of humor comes from my dad. The thing is, my dad, because he is so Cuban, he has a super thick accent. And many times people have no idea what he's saying. So when he tells his jokes, people want to laugh and they think they should laugh, but they don't really know what they're laughing at. And so one of the things that I've had to do over time is I've had to become the the expositor of my dad. I've had to become the person who explains my dad to the outside world, right? And other people know my dad, but only I, my brother and I, understand my dad. Why? Because he's my dad, okay? I, 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 don't, I don't just know what my dad does. I know why he does it, because he's my dad. That's exactly what God wants for us. God doesn't just want you to know his will. He wants you to understand it. As a father, as a, as a child understands their father, but that only happens with time. That only happens with prayer. That only happens with intimacy. God doesn't want you just to know his will. He wants you to understand his will. And once you understand it, then you can converge it and you can bring your timeline with his, your will with his. So the three steps that we are to take, we are to evaluate our time. We are to redeem our time. And then lastly, we are to converge our time. Now, now here's the question as I conclude here. The question is this, what do we do? What happens when we forget everything Paul just said? Because here's the reality, and, and I'm okay with it, right? I've had to accept this. Uh, the reality is that by Wednesday, you're gonna forget 98.9% of what I just said. So, so what happens when, I, when you forget? But it's funny, you forget the information, but not the guilt, right? What happens when you forget? What happens when you fail to do what Paul says to do here? What, what happens when you start to experience what I call religious fatigue and, and you just can't do it anymore? 
Well, what happens? What, what do we do in those moments? Because, because Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 is unique in that. On the one hand, it calls us up to incredible heights. And yet at the very same time, it crushes us down to incredible depths. On the one hand, it calls you up because you're like, man, I want to do that. I want to live this life. But then on the other hand, when you really understand what Paul is saying, if you're being honest, if you were to inject yourself with true serum, it also crushes you down to the depths because you're like, I can't actually do this, at least not consistently like Paul says. See, the reason why Paul does that, though, is because Paul, he doesn't want you to have a religious response to this passage. He wants you to have a gospel response to this passage. And here's what I mean. Paul doesn't want you to look inward for a solution. He wants you to look outward for a solution. And here's why. The reason why the apostle Paul wants you to look outward for a solution is because Paul knows and God knows that our ultimate problem is not time. Time is a fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. Listen, if our ultimate problem was time, then God would have given us a, a, a time management app. If our ultimate problem was time, God would have given us a kitten calendar, like the ones that you go through month by month, right? If our ultimate problem was time, God would have given us a Palm Pilot. Remember those things, the Palm Pilots were back in the day, right? If our ultimate problem was time, God would have given us a personal assistant. But, it's, but since our ultimate problem is sin and not time, God sent us a savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's so crazy about Scripture. All throughout this passage, we've been talking about wisdom. In every other religion, the way you grow in wisdom is by gaining more knowledge, by gaining more principles. But in Christianity, wisdom is not a set of abstract principles. Wisdom is a concrete person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I love about the gospel. That word kairos that we see here in this passage, this isn't the only place in scripture where we see the word kairos. As a matter of fact, there are other places in the New Testament where the word kairos is used. And what's beautiful about each one of those times is that it points us to a greater Kairos moment, a Kairos moment that impacts all of our Kairos moments, okay? In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to the day, they literally looked forward to a day, to a time when the Messiah would arrive. Guess what Greek word is there in 1 Peter uh, 1? It's not the word chronos, it's the word Kairos. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, my time is near. He's talking about his impending death. My time is near. Guess what Greek word is being used there? It's not chronos, it's kairos. In Galatians chapter four, Paul says that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman to redeem us from under the law. Guess what word is used there? Not chronos, kairos. In Romans chapter five, we are told that while we were still sinners at just the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. Guess what word is used there? Not chronos, kairos. Jesus took advantage of the kairos. Jesus Christ stewarded and redeemed the kairos. But here's what's crazy, you guys. Here's what blows my mind. Every single one of those instances that I just made reference to, every single last one of them aren't describing Jesus' life. They're describing his death. His Kairos moment was at the cross. And the question is why? Because that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because according to this passage, when you manage your time, when you redeem the time, what, should, what you should get is, 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 is blessing. What you should get is love. What you should get is favor. 
What you should get is God's kindness. But think about it. Jesus Christ is the only person in human history that fully obeyed Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. So you would think in light of that, when he got to the end of his life, he will get God's love. He will get God's mercy. He will get God's grace. He will get God's protection. But what we see is at the end of his life, Jesus gets punishment. At the end of his life, he gets wrath. At the end of his life, he gets silence. Why? Why is God's will so different for Jesus, even though he clearly obeys Ephesians 5, 15 through 17? Well, here's what's crazy. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is in the garden, he is praying and he's saying, Lord, please take this cup from me. But he says, not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. Well, here's what's crazy. In scripture, we know what God's will was in that moment because all the way back in Isaiah 43, verse 10, it says that the will of God was to crush him. But that doesn't make any sense. Why, why? Why would he do that to Jesus when Jesus is the only person who deserved his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness? Why? Why would he do that to Jesus? Well, he did it to Jesus so that he wouldn't do it to you. He did it to him, but at the very same time, he did it for us. That's why. At the end of Jesus' life, at the end of Jesus' perfect life, he was treated the way we deserved. So that the end of our imperfect life, we can be treated the way he deserved. That's the gospel. That changes everything. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't. And at the cross, he died the death so we wouldn't. That's the gospel, guys. And that's what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. Man, once you understand that, it changes everything. It, it, liter it quite literally changes everything because now when God sees you, if you place your faith in Jesus, when God sees you, he doesn't see you anymore. It says that we are in Christ. We are united with Christ. So when God sees you today, regardless of what this week looks like, regardless if by the time I say amen, you forget everything I just said. When God sees you, if you're in Christ, he sees you as someone who has fully obeyed Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, even though you haven't and even though you won't. Why? Because Jesus came down and he managed the Kronos and he redeemed the Kairos for you and for me, that's why. All of a sudden then you get to live this passage out, not in order to get God's love, but because you're already, you already are loved. And then you're motivated not by this religious guilt, but by this gospel grace. Not this religious fear, but this gospel freedom. And then what starts to happen, get this, as you redeem the time, you start to be a missionary for God. You start to be an ambassador of Christ. And you start to do partially what Jesus will eventually do fully at the end of time. Listen, so the degree that you understand that, it changes everything. And, and if you're sitting here today and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, you're listening to this and heck, you might be an incredible time manager. You, been, you, might, be, you, might, be managing, you might have been managing your time for years now, but you've never heard about redeeming the time. You, this is not the relationship you have with time because that, this is not the relationship you have with God. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, I want that. I want a relationship with this God. I want to be in relationship with him. I want to approach time this way. I want to be seen and loved by God this way. If that's you, what the Bible says is that all it takes, all you have to do is right now is to pray and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do it right now. Pause the, the stream and go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want, I know that I can't live Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm broken. I know that I have failed again and again and again. And I want to start a relationship with you today. That's something that I did back when I was 18, senior year of high school. 
that was my moment. That was my Kairos moment. And this might be yours. Maybe God's calling you to get baptized. Maybe that's your Kairos moment. Maybe God's calling you to, to get involved. But we all have Kairos moments. And I believe this morning, right now, today is one of them. If that's you, I would love for you to text the word high point to the number 97000. Listen, guys, to the degree that we realize that we have been redeemed by God, to that same degree, we will redeem time for God. And my prayer for me and for you and for our church is that we would be a church that not only manages Kronos, but redeems Kairos for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that Jesus Christ redeemed Kairos, that, that Jesus Christ not only managed Kronos, but he redeemed Kairos, and that Jesus, at, at the beginning of his life, he stepped into our Kronos, and at the end of his life, he redeemed the Kairos. Thank you that because of what he did, we are now accepted and approved. I pray for the people who have, who have accepted you today, for the people who want to take that step. I pray that today would be the day that they come into your kingdom. Maybe today's the day that someone gets, decides they're going to get baptized or they're going to serve or they're going to join a group. But that today, that we would, none of us would walk away from today without taking a step towards you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.